Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, I'm Gene Turnbow. Welcome to the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Uh, with me is my co-host and executive producer, Susan Fox. Good evening. And we are talking to... Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert, authors of the New York Times bestseller this week, Mentats of Doom. The 19th book in the series. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. This is Brian, and the other voice you'll hear should be... This is Kevin, and it, it sounds distinctly different, and we won't argue which one of us is, is wittier or more intelligent. We, we collaborate on everything. Uh, there, there's 19 books in the series, but 18 of them follow the canon. Frank Herbert wrote six, Kevin and I wrote 12 more, and then Kevin and I wrote a, a novel called, the Spice, called Spice Planet, which is an alternate Dune story that Frank Herbert wrote, and it does not follow... You know, the, all everything that's laid out in the Dune universe, but it's an interesting side trip in in the Dune universe that was based on Frank Herbert's notes, and it's in a larger book called The Road to Dune. That's his sandbox. He can do it. The Road to Dune sounds like it should have Bing Crosby and Bob. I was going to say that. <laughs> or or that an Oz book. The, the, the Road to, to Oz. I think is. was was one of the books. Yeah, follow the sand coated road. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Well, we've spent a lot of time in the sandbox telling uh, plenty of different stories, and uh, Frank Herbert just left so much for us to explore, because the, the Dune universe isn't just about this one desert planet that he created, that the home of Spice and, and the sandworms and Tremen, but Frank Herbert created this this vast tapestry with lots of different planets and imperial politics and ecology and religion and and lots of interesting places to visit. So uh, although all of our books have Dune as a focal point, the planet Dune, we have explored so many other different places and families and and conflicts that there's just so much more for us to explore. And uh, Mentats of Dune is the brand new one that follows the formation of the Mentat school, which are, they are the human computers that take place or that, that come to fruition after all of the other high technology has been has been discarded and overthrown. As, as Kevin said, Dune is such a huge universe. It spans thousands of years. And um, we wrote uh, a trilogy, Kevin and I did, The Butlerian Jihad, about the uh, humans rising up and uh, overthrowing thinking machines that had enslaved humanity. Well, these the new books that Kevin and I are, are writing are set immediately after the Butlerian Jihad. So we're still 10,000 years before Dune. So it's just a huge scale. And 
it's interesting to look at the novel Dune and realize that it's it's a great science fiction novel, but it's not dependent on technology. And so many uh, science fiction novels are, so it's really an exception. And really, that's it, it's about people and relationships. And so that's that's what these great schools are that were founded thousands of years before the events in Dune. They're about human potential. So we have this, the sisterhood, the formation of the of the sisterhood school. That was our first book, Sisterhood of Dune, in this series. And then Mentats, and these these are human computers, uh, completely biological. And then Navigators of Dune will be the next book in the series about these incredible mutated human beings that. Some people think they've lost their humanity, but I really like to look at them as a as an extension of humanity. That 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 it's it's showing the potential of of what a human mind can do. And and, and in that case, in a navigator's case, it, the mind expands to encompass the entire universe. Now, one of the key conflicts, uh, especially in Mentats of Dune, is a real clash of uh, technology versus anti-technology. And there is a a very large and vehement uh, some might even call them fanatical movement called the Butlerians that are trying to scrap all technology, all computers, all advanced um, high-tech uh, stuff. And there's a lot of resistance to that because people don't want their medical technology to go away, their space travel technology to go away. And there's a large clash. It's, a, it's basically religion versus science, which, of course, is, is very relevant today. And it allows us to explore some very interesting ideas on a on a broad canvas that Frank Herbert created. Relevant in so many ways. The Luddites of Dune, there's another title, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be, but we're, we're calling them the Mentats of Dune instead. But it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting time period because it's pivotal for the Dune universe, and those people who have read the original novel know that it's a future where where human potential guides everything. There are no supercomputers and, and technology almost looks medieval, and it's because of the events set up in this time period where uh, there is such a horror of advanced technology after uh, the very bloody and long-spanning Butlerian Jihad and all of the enslavement from the thinking machines, that it, it gives us um, some dramatic events to explore, and it's not uh, the same sort of questions that we raised in the other Dune books that we wrote. It's also sort of like prohibition in that uh, there are some people that are violating that that prohibition against computers, and they're the, mo the most unlikely of suspects. And I'm not going to throw any spoilers out here for those that haven't read our, our series. Looking at it from the outside, and I have to confess that I have not read all 19 books, 18 books including this one that's newly out, uh, it's... It astonishes me that uh, that Frank Herbert had built such a towering backstory at, at um, the well, world. Yeah, it's incredible. Had, you know, the the Butlerian Jihad is an appendix to Dune, um, and he did the six books that he wrote without using a computer. And but Kevin and I, not being you know genius level like Frank Herbert, we we've had to use computers to keep our facts straight. But Frank Herbert kept it all in his mind, sort of like a, a, a navigator. Maybe that's incredible mind the that idea he had. for the mentions, Because huh? he knew what kind of mind that sort of person would need. I, I couldn't hear you, Susan. Uh, I said maybe that's where he got the idea for the mentats, because he knew what kind of a mind that person would need. Yeah, I, I covered a lot of that in a biography I wrote about Frank Herbert called Dreamer of Dune. And... Um, 
we had a, a man in our family, Cooper Landis, who who hated machines. So that that was one of the of, of the sources of. But Dad had, you know, so many sources. It was unbelievable for all, all of his all of his concepts that, that went into Dune. As Kevin said, it's a it's, it's a huge huge sandbox. How old were you when the first book was published? Uh, well, I was the same age as Paul Atreides. Uh, <laughs> But I'm I'm not Paul, but I I do see aspects of uh, Frank Herbert in in Duke Leto, um, and and the honor that that Duke Leto had, and I see aspects of my mother in Lady Jessica. Um, so it's it's interesting to to reread the books and and to see my parents in there. Well, and when Frank Herbert created Dune, he he dealt with so many important issues that that were relevant in the in the 1960s when he wrote it, but they're so many relevant issues today that not just this war of, of religion versus technology, which which is painfully relevant almost every time you turn the news on, but he was dealing with limited resources. He was dealing with damage to the environment. He was dealing with um, fanatical leaders and the dangers of, of charismatic leaders. Uh, he was showing us about uh, spice. Uh, many people believe was a metaphor for oil, this precious substance that was found primarily in this horrible desert part of the world that it was very hard to get to. Uh, it, it, every time I reread Dune, and I, I reread Dune regularly, I, I have this light bulb go on over my head when I see something else that he put in there that seems to be just as fresh to the, today as it must have been when he wrote it. And it's and a polyphonic. He, he, he called it a polyphonic novel in that it has multiple layers, so... Frank Herbert said you could read any one of the layers, such as about religion, as Kevin mentioned. Um, when there's lots of women's issues, strong women in there, there's politics, there's warnings about the en- environment, and there's warnings about political leaders. But you can read any one of those layers, get to the end of the book, and then go back and read it again. I um, do, I do, and I read it about once every ten years. And as as yeah. my life changes and as the world changes. New layers emerge like an onion, you know. But, but even beyond what I just said, Dad said to me once that he liked to write a book, and he was using Dune as an example, where the reader at the very end of the book, the reader goes spinning out of the story with, with all the characters still clinging to them, and so the reader then wants to go back and and read about those characters again or read other novels in the series. And I think we should also mention just just because it's very impressive that. Right now, Dune is 50 years old. The magazine publication was in 1963, and I believe that the book publication was 1965. So next year will be the 50th year of the book published, the publication of Dune. And it is, uh, we believe, the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. And it, it just gets more readers every year. And it, it uh, as you said, Susan, you keep reading it every 10 years, every five years, whatever. Uh, it's, it's like the Lord of the Rings, only for science fiction. And, and after so Kevin levels. and I started writing our, our prequels and sequels, uh, sales of Dune initially tripled, and um, sales of Dune are, are really still way up, I mean, compared to where they were before we started writing the books, so the newer books. So we're pleased that, that people are going back and reading that great classic that should be read for 500 or more years. So how did you get... Uh... What, what was the breaking point? What was the trigger that got you started? Well, I I'd been I was pretty well known for refusing to write a Dune book um, in in the science fiction uh, genre, and um, I thought that 
chapter house tune. My my mother named named the book. She died in Hawaii while Dad was writing it, um, and he wrote this beautiful tribute to her. It's a three page tribute at the end of the book uh, about their life together. And I thought since they were a writing team. Uh, she was a, a professional writer, just as he was, and she gave him a lot of good advice. I thought that the whole series should end right there, and but that was kind of my emotional feeling. And so for for years, I I did have other suitors that that wanted to to write in the series, either by themselves or with me. But I finally met Kevin, and um, Kevin convinced me that there were a lot more stories to be told. Uh, in in the universe, and I'm I'm really glad that we did it. I mean, we've we've been on book tours, and I've met people that that knew my father, knew my mother, uh, and as I said, just rereading the books that Dad wrote, I I see so many things that I didn't notice before. So um, there's a lot of enthusiasm that Kevin and I have for this project, and I I, I think that carries uh, out to the readers. I think the readers are enthusiastic too, and and we're all in it together. I mean, so we we all want to see more Dune stories. Well, and I was, I myself was such a huge diehard Dune fan. I read, I read it, I think the first time when I was like 11 years old or so, and I just loved it. And then I read it again when I started college and, and saw so many things that I had missed before. Uh, I, I do remember that God Emperor of Dune came out when I was a freshman in college. And that was the first hardcover book that I ever spent my own money on because it was so important to me to get a copy of it and keep reading. Uh, and, and I read, all of Frank Herbert's books, not just the Dune one. I, I went through everything that was on the other book spy list in the front cover of, of his novels. And he was a big influence on my own writing. I had never uh, met Ryan or never met him, but he was a big influence. And when I sold my very first novel uh, to Signet Books, I, I got Frank Herbert's home address because I could join the Science Fiction Writers of America. And I had made up my mind I was going to send him the very first signed copy of my first novel. And I was very excited about that. But he unfortunately passed away before the novel could be released. So I, I never got a chance to meet him or, or send him my book. But I, I kept reading everything. And, and I'm so glad that Brian and I got together because uh, we read all of Frank Herbert's notes and all the ideas that that he developed while writing Dune, as well as the ideas that he wanted to develop in later stories. And uh, we're just, I'm just personally very pleased to be carrying on the legacy. It must have been um, opening those notes and taking a look at them and beginning to immerse yourselves in them must have been like walking into a cathedral. <laughs> it, it was. We have over a 1,000 pages. I think we counted 1,200 or 1,500 pages of notes related to Dune. Um, and then we also have uh, a 30-page outline yep. that we found in Safety Deposit Box oh of gosh. Dune 7, which is, became hundreds of Dune and sandworms of Dune. So yeah, it was walk, like walking into a cathedral exactly. I could not believe um, what, what we were finding once I started looking with, with Kevin's help. Well, and I, I think the, the moment that I remember the most, it was one of those those like shining moments, was when Brian and I were going through archives that of Frank Herbert's papers that he had given to a university uh, in, in California. And we were in the back room looking through these archives, pulling out like letters and postcards and handwritten notes. And, and I found this little square piece of paper, like something you would have from a telephone notepad beside the bed. And in Frank Herbert's handwriting, it, it had written down, damn the spice, save the men, the key to Leto's character with the question on it. 
and I, I just stopped holding this and I went, this is one of the most important moments in Dune and I've got this little scrap of paper and I, I quickly showed it to Brian and we were very, very thrilled to just see that, that little glimpse into his thinking process. So he probably had that as a phone, a message right by his bed, and he he woke up and wrote that down. He did it another time too. He 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 had this great idea, and and he he woke up in the middle of the night and 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 wrote it down, and then he he woke up in the in the morning, and he just really excited to go back and find what that note was. But all it said was "great idea for a story," and <laughs> he, he couldn't remember he couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> well, and, uh, some of the other things that we found in the notes were pages and pages of Frank Herbert's epigraphs, those those pithy quotes that he would put at the beginning of the chapters. I love and they're just like brilliant observations that he wrote down that he just kept records of these and he wanted to use them in later Dune books, but had not gotten around to using them. But Brian and I have those notes, uh, the epigraphs, and we put them into uh, many of the chapters. We, we kind of kept a checklist and as we used them, we would cross them out. But uh, in another instance, we found uh, an entire chapter of the first meeting of Duke Leto and Lady Jessica, and he's sure that she's that he's being set up at some kind of a Bene Gesserit plot. Well, and when yes. she's introduced to him, he he like grabs her and puts a knife to her throat. And that was a chapter that Frank Herbert wrote. And when we included that in was it House Harkonnen, Brian? We we just mm-hmm. basically sanded the beginning and the end so that it would fit perfectly in the story and then put that entire Frank Herbert chapter right into our book. Oh, nice. That's kind of a rarity. In fact, that that is a rarity. We didn't find any other chapters that we used. Uh, I hope that's not how your parents met really, okay? Oh, okay. No, and I wrote about it in Dreamer of Dune. They they met in a creative writing class at the University of Washington in Seattle in 1946. And um, they were the only two students that had sold stories. She sold a uh, a romance story, and Dad had, had sold an adventure story to an Alaska magazine. So, and then right after they were married, a few months later, um, they went to this fire lookout in uh, near Mount Mount Rainier, where they could see Mount Rainier, and they took typewriters up to the top of this fire lookout, and they both started writing. So that was the beginning of their of their life together in their writing career they they used um, mules to carry uh these typewriters and big foot lockers up to the up to the fire lookout and they were up there up there writing from the very beginning wow makes me curious it's quite a love story it's an incredible love story between those two makes me curious to find more of your mother's work we might actually have some of that and, and some of the things I, I should mention i'm also the uh the publisher of a mid-sized press and we've released a lot of Brian's backlist books and a lot of Frank Herbert's uh, books other than Dune, we've released those. But we found uh, Brian had, uh, I think, four complete novel manuscripts that Frank Herbert wrote that had never been published, and we've released three of them so far. One is called High Op, like High Opportunity, mm-hmm. and the next one's called Angel's Fall, which is this great jungle survival story in the Amazon jungle. And the third one is called A Game of Authors, which is a, a Cold War thriller about an author who disappears down in Mexico and a, another a reporter who goes searching for him. So those we've released those books, and we do have a bunch of his short stories that he wrote that were never published, and we'll be releasing a collection of those next year. But Frank Herbert, he's known as a science fiction writer, but he wrote 
all kinds of things. He wrote mysteries and thrillers and mainstream and, and a lot of great work. And every one of those sentences, even from some of the very early stories, has this very distinctive Frank Herbert flavor to it. And, and I, I get quite a lot of enjoyment just reading these old carbon copy manuscripts that Brian sent me. My gosh, I remember, for those of you listening, if you remember carbon paper, <laughs> I remember it well. Oh, <laughs> as yeah. As Marie Chevalier said in, in Gigi. Ah, yes, I remember it well. Absolutely. Carbon paper all over the place. Carbon sets Dad used to buy. But as a, as a smaller publisher, we just felt that it was very important to get these books out there. And Frank Herbert, he did intend for them to be published. These were the manuscripts that he uh, gave to his agent, and they were submitted around. But But because these were not most of them were not straight science fiction stories. Uh, once he started publishing science fiction, that's all the readers wanted, or that's all the editors wanted, at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's got all these these mysteries and thrillers and mainstream stories that are really good, and, and we'll be uh, bringing them out just because that we think there are plenty of Frank Herbert fans that want to read his other work. And I, like Dad, I said... Dad didn't... Dad didn't write for a particular marketplace, and so his agent w- was very frustrated with him for for writing those adventure stories and things that that his agent couldn't couldn't get published because Frank Herbert had had was was well known at that point for writing a, a good science fiction novel, Dragon in the Sea, came out in 1955, and then Dad decided to start moving himself around the bookstore, and and his agent didn't like that. The publishers didn't like the stories, the lengths of them, or what they were about, but. When he got to Dune, uh, again, Dad wrote whatever he felt like writing. And in, in, when he was in the midst of writing Dune about 1960, started in 1958, finished it, as Kevin said, about 63. In the midst of, of writing Dune in 1960, um, Dad had a net worth of below zero. He owed, owed the IRS a lot of money and this and that. But he, his agent, um, and he had a, a big fight, and they parted ways. Uh, because dad wouldn't listen to the agent and so dad just kept going on this on this story and he he said that he knew it was going to be be good and so when he got doing finished or, or a certain level where where people could could understand where he was going with it it was turned down more than 20 times including by one uh, very well-known editor who said I may be making the mistake of my career in turning down Frank Herbert's Dune, but I just can't get through the first hundred pages without being confused and irritated. But so he was, it, it, he could have been just not published. And, and you hear about people like that, that it, it would have been a, a terrible loss, uh, if not for a man named Sterling Lanier, who had written a couple of science fiction novels, and he was also an editor at Chilton Books, and Chilton published auto repair manuals. Um, they didn't publish science fiction, and but Sterling Lanier became the champion of, of Frank Herbert's story, and he got Chilton to publish that in 1965. What a strange! Um, what a strange! It went way thing. beyond. I mean, Sterling Lanier's bosses thought this was going to be the big flop of, of of Lanier's career, but it turned out the other way. Uh, it was a huge chance that Lanier took, but but he was a champion of, of Frank Herbert in getting that story published. What is what a strange thing! I mean, what. Chilton Books, who does nothing but auto manuals, taking a chance on on marketing something like that, knowing nothing about uh, yeah. really how to market a science fiction book. But he knew about marketing books. Well, that's they true. printed twenty two hundred copies, and they 
they didn't go too far, but then word of mouth started to get out within about five, six years, and then they started going back to press. Well, that's a testament to the sheer force of how great Dune is, that even with all these odds stacked against it, it did eventually find its audience, and obviously it's still going strong, and it, it makes me worry how many other great novels like Dune are out there that maybe never did get that one little lucky break that that some guy at an auto repair manual publisher decided to take a chance. The original book yeah. is not a thin book either. I mean, this is not, no. uh, this isn't well, a 200 was, page story. It had to be sold for this huge price of $5 that, that was, it just didn't pencil out for publishers at the time. Well, oh, and I know oddly, I got oddly enough, Frank Herbert, well, Dune was, was so much longer than what the average science fiction novel was that, that mm-hmm. the length was just wrong. Nobody knew what to do with the book at this length. And I can make the comparison on the other end of the spectrum, too, because of all these stacks of of stories that Frank Herbert wrote, he did lots of them in like the fourteen to 17,000 word range, which is kind of a, a dead zone. It, it's too long to be a short story, and it's too short to be a novel, and it's very hard to publish something novellas. like that. But you can't. Frank you, Herbert it's still hard to wrote publish what novellas. He wanted to. Frank Herbert wrote what he wanted to. Mm-hmm. It's still mm-hmm. hard to publish novellas. I mean, uh, it, electronic publishing is is really the first time the novella has has really found a niche in the market. Uh, yeah, but I mean, right now with the the Wordfire Press mm-hmm. that we're doing, we are releasing them just because it, a length doesn't really matter, and these are great stories, and they deserve to be out there. So, uh, as I said, we've got these three previously unpublished novels that are already out there: uh, Game of Authors and Angels Fall and High Op. But we've also brought back uh, Soul Catcher, The God Makers, The Heaven Makers, uh, his entire uh, Destination Void, and the three Pandora sequels that he wrote with Bill Ransom, The Jesus Incident, and The Lazarus Effect, and The Ascension Factor. Um, I may even be forgetting some. That, well, oh, no, there's uh, Man of Two Worlds, which was his last novel that Frank Herbert wrote, which he wrote with some guy named Brian Herbert, Two of them did a, a great book together, and we're, we've got that one published too. So it's uh, the changes in publishing is wonderful that you're allowed to put up books that that traditional publishers maybe just didn't didn't pencil out the bottom line and find out that they could sell enough copies to make it worthwhile. But but we can we can go to the the core audience and really get them the stuff they want to read. Well, Kevin has done some of my backlist, but he's also done a couple of new releases. And I, I wrote a, an environmental novel that Tor is going to be publishing in July, The Little Green Book of Chairman Rama. And I wrote another environmental novel about the ocean fighting back against our civilization and declaring a war. And my editor at Tor told me that it's the best thing I've ever written. But he said he didn't want to make me an offer on it yet until he saw how the sales were a Little Green Book. And so I said, the heck with that! It's it's too big of an idea. It was an idea that my wife Jan gave me, um, and I'm I'm not going to take a chance and have it stolen. So Kevin published that book for me and did a very nice job with it. It's called Ocean. Very very simple title about the ocean declaring war on our civilization, putting our garbage back up on the beaches, and making us clean it up. So I they think she's going to do us. it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big idea. It was way too big of an idea for me to take full credit on the cover. So Jan is on the cover with me um, because it, it was her huge idea. She came back from Hawaii with it one time after swimming in the beautiful ocean there and just 
coming back angry when she realized what what, what people are doing, throwing the garbage, the plastic out there, and, and all that stuff. So we we deal with all the plastic that's floating around out in the North Pacific. It all gets sent back by ocean creatures. They send it back on our beaches and make us clean it up. So well, Kevin did a nice job on the cover of it too. It looks really nice. Brian and I were just guests at the Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, which had uh, 85,000 attendees, and we had a very nice table there. And Brian, Brian was there, and I were there, was there. Uh, we were pitching the Mentats of Dune as well as our our Hellhole series. But uh, Brian managed to make uh, that book Ocean our second best-selling title on the whole table. Mentats of Dune just barely outsold it, but. Uh, he, wow. he sold a lot of people copies of that, and it did very well. I have been uh, listening to these titles going by and thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to have to add this to my poll list. Well, Don't we hope all of me. your listeners feel the same. <laughs> Thank you, Gene. We really appreciate your interest in what we're doing. So, um, please, please let us know the, um, the name of the press again and how we can buy all these new books. Well, they're all they're all available. You can order them in bookstores. They're all on Amazon.com. They're in all electronic formats, whether you have a, a Kindle or a Kobo or a Nook or a Sony e-reader or an iPad. They're they're just the where you look for every other book. The the press is called Wordfire Press, and our site is WordfirePress.com. That uh, like like everybody, we've got a website that needs to have some updating made to it because I'm working too hard to keep keep up with everything I'm doing myself, but they're in print format. They're in all electronic formats. Uh, and we believe that eBooks should be affordable, that you should pay about five or six bucks for an eBook instead of like 20 bucks for an eBook. So all of our titles are, are very reasonably priced, but the print versions are, are beautiful trade paperbacks. I'm, I'm very pleased. I do most of the covers out of myself, sort of my side hobby of dabbling with the, uh, with the artwork, and I'm very happy with how they look. And, and in fact, we released Brian's Time Web series too. He had a trilogy that had a hard time getting distribution. The other publisher of it didn't follow a lot of the channels that most people would expect, and so people. Well, it went into every library in the known universe, and that was their game plan. And yeah, after that, they ran out of libraries. Yeah. So, but you couldn't buy it in a bookstore, and now. We've reissued that book, The Time Web Chronicles, and very happy to know that we've sold way more than the first publisher did this way. But uh, that's that's sort of my the thing I'm spending a lot of time with now is being the the publisher and bringing other people's books out. But I'm still writing like six or seven books a year myself, and Brian's writing like crazy, and we're still doing books together. And um, he just sold. He's got a book called Sudana Sudana one of his classics, uh, science fiction books that he's just sold to Boom Studios to do a, uh, a comic adaptation of it. And I'm doing a kind of comic adaptation for them, uh, of my steampunk novel called Clockwork Angels that I wrote oh, with boy. the brand oh, Rush. What so a you, great title. You can't keep up with us. You know, we're just writing <laughs> and writing and writing. So six or <laughs> seven. This, this just boggles me. Because, but, because but, I just, every, uh, every title that we've just mentioned now, Susan, you have to go and order them. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. And and you Thank need you. to know that that while Brian is talking and answering questions, I've got a laptop here and I'm writing paragraphs in a chapter. So we take turns. <laughs> 
That is. Uh, I want. I wanted to mention briefly about my mother, Beverly Herbert. Um, she got this wonderful tribute at the end of Chapter House Dune, and she basically shortly, well, say three or four years after they went up in the fire lookout, she she saw that uh, that nobody was really bringing any income in in the family, so she quit trying to be a creative writer and she became an ad writer for big department stores, Macy's and, and the like. And so she supported our family. Um, so that was really uh, a, a lot of what she wrote was commercial ad writing, um, although she did publish a few stories. Um, and, and she wrote a couple of novels that were unpublished, a couple of mystery novels. Well, you know, bless her, she, she did make a living writing. It wasn't sci-fi and it wasn't romance and it wasn't anyone reads for fun, but... You know, she kept the roof over yeah. your heads. Well, it's uh, you know the three kids and everything else. Well, and yeah. uh, Susan, I have to I have to doff my hat to you. You're doing the same thing with the kind of am. You know, she she's the uh, managing editor of Hollywood News Calendar and doing essentially the same thing with uh, Krypton Radio and our our, uh, our radio drama productions and Thank and you, all of sweet. that. Those are great names, by the way. Hollywood News Calendar and Krypton Radio. Oh, thank you. I am the name person. You want something that's five words or less? I'm there. Yeah, she's the master of the short delivery. Wow. Well, I had to, you know, again, having to live with a very accomplished father. He was a news reporter for uh, newspapers and television, and uh, having to follow that act was never easy. And and I think you can understand what it's like being, being in the house of an accomplished father. Well, Susan, that's what Frank Herbert was. He was a reporter and a feature writer for newspapers when he had a job. Mm. You know, the um, the space opera we're working on is called Halfway Home. It's oh. about life in the asteroid belt. And that was another middle of the night I, idea. I had to wake him up to say, this is the title, this is the title. What? Huh? It's a good, good title. Sleep. I mean, you don't want to be halfway home out there. Yes. Deep space. Well, and, but and it's, it's halfway to everywhere. It's halfway out. It's halfway home. It's halfway to heaven and halfway to hell. And I'm going to write a song too. You've got that pitch right down there. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> so uh, how uh, how oh. much? Oh, well, I go have ahead, one. Susan. Just my my day job. I would be remiss if I did not mention that my my. Assistant at my day job, Greg the Jedi, was very, even more impressed that I was talking to Kevin than Brian because you know of the 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 Star the Star Wars novels. <laughs> Are you still working on those? I, I haven't I haven't worked on Star Wars novels for about fifteen or, or eighteen years. I did I did fifty four projects for Lucasfilm, uh, and I, I think I explored just about every planet that they had in the Star Wars universe, and and. Just as that was wrapping up, I, I got this great connection and great opportunity to work with Brian. And so I, I've been playing in the Dune Sandbox for, what is it now, Brian, 16, 18 years? So yeah, we met 16 years ago. According to my, my notes here, yeah, just about. Yeah. Yes, yeah. a long time. And I, but I, I, I love Disney my Star Disney isn't going to buy you. I was just at, at a thing called Fanex at Salt Lake City last weekend with 100,000 people. Uh, and and I was also, as I said, at Emerald City, and, and and Brian was with me there. But all day long, we have fans come up and tell me that my Star Wars books were the first books that they ever read, and those were the books that Gosh. got them reading science fiction books, and and that's what inspired them to go on to read other books, and including Dune. So um, I'm happy that I could have had an impact on a lot of people's lives that 
Uh, they're now readers where if they had just listened to what their high school teachers told them to read, which was usually boring stuff, they, they maybe wouldn't have become readers, but I'm glad that they sneaked out and got my Jedi Academy books instead and, and enjoyed what they were reading. It's a gateway now, drug. Now, Kevin, didn't you also invent something in, uh, to do with a lightsaber? I know not, not the, yeah. the one where we, we think of as a lightsaber, but wasn't there some aspect of a lightsaber that you invented and went into movies? Well, it was the, in the comics that I did for Star Wars that I, I created a, a Dark Lord of the Sith who used this really cool thing that was a double lightsaber that became very uh -huh. prominent in, in oh, episode one, two, and three. So that was me and, and my comics co-author and artist that we worked on that. But, you know, when you work in Star Wars, you're, you're sort of a hired gun that all the ideas that you develop and put into the books, that that's, those are things that Lucasfilm can take and do whatever they want with. Uh, and, you know, when, when we're, Brian and I are writing in the Dune universe, we have to be very careful to take care of the, uh, the, the family china and not, not chip it or damage it before we put it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like writing a sonnet. Within the format, you can do what you want and, and tell the story you wish. But you don't mess with the format or it isn't a sonnet anymore. Right. The, the, the Dune fans in particular are very picky, and so um, I don't think we could hire a bunch of writers just to write Dune stories. We, we'd have to do so much checking that it'd be easier to write them our, ourselves. Cause there's Science so much fiction detail. fans picky? No. Say it ain't so. <laughs> well, rightfully so, too. We, we we try to write for the most difficult of, of fans, or the most demanding of fans. We we try to write to that standard. We don't always please that, that particular person, but we try. That was going to. I was going to ask that question, and you wandered off into that topic on your own. Uh, how oh, I'm much, very self-effacing. You know? <laughs> how much? Uh, uh, how much influence has has fandom had on what you create? How much influence has what had? How much influence has fandom had on what you create? Do, do the fans? Well, a, a, a lot. Um, when Kevin and I were first announced that we were going to publish uh, Dune House Atreides, there was this huge uproar uh, on the internet, and um, we went to a uh, big convention, was. Dragon Con in Atlanta, and all we had at that point was a little chat book with chapter one in it, and but it had the book cover on it, and so fans lined up to get, get their free chat book and things, and we we looked and we were trying to see if any of them had tomatoes and fruit, you know, <laughs> fresh fruit to throw at us, but... Uh -huh. The very first person in line came up and thanked us for continuing the series. And, and I've heard that over and over and over. And, and even the biggest critics, we had huge critics that were saying that we were, it was sacrilegious that we were even going to write a Dune novel. Well, some of them, but not all of them, actually apologized after actually reading the book. Um, so it, it's nice to read the book before you criticize. <laughs> Well, well who was more entitled than you? Come on, you know. Well, the fans are entitled to to to, to see the the universe not be ruined, and so Kevin and I have taken it very seriously, and and we understand that. Uh, that you could have written feel... it as My Little Pony on Dune, but you know what? Nothing you wrote would have ruined the original brilliance in the first book. It doesn't right. hurt the book at all. It's still good right. We're it. we're just making people go back and read that book. Absolutely, and it, and they still do, and it still sells. And well, it's interesting. Did, Kevin, didn't you find a review where somebody reviewed one or two of Dad's sequels, and and they said, "Well, this is pretty good, but it's not as good as Dune." I think we've seen one or two reviews like that too. And duh, 
I mean, what is going to be as good as Dune, you know? <laughs> that's, that's setting the bar awfully high to expect that our books are going to be better than the original Dune. But, <laughs> but Frank, Frank Herbert also, I mean, just to put it in perspective, that, that Frank Herbert wrote Dune Messiah after Dune, and a lot of people just had a great deal of trouble with Dune Messiah because they wanted to read the same thing all over again. They wanted Paul to be the, the likable hero and riding off into the sunset and conquering things and that wasn't what Frank Herbert wanted to do. He he did something entirely different and and it's a real classic now, but when it came out a lot of people were just stunned and, and very dissatisfied with the, some of the Frank Herbert sequels because they wanted to see something different or they had their own minds made up. But you know, Frank Herbert gets to write whatever he wants in his own universe and Well loved- yeah, and doing Doing Messiah, the second book, instead of this great hero, Paul Atreides is the dark side of the hero, and billions of people have been killed in his name. And so that's, as Kevin mentioned earlier, the the warning against following a charismatic leader. Um, And so we explained, Dad spent 20 years in interviews explaining why he did that in Doing Messiah. And so Kevin and I wrote the novel, Paul of Dune, which chronologically fits between Dune and Doing Messiah. And Paul of Dune explains why Frank Herbert uh, went in that direction. But again, he's writing what Frank Herbert wrote, whatever he felt like writing, and and, uh, it's interesting that he did. I think it's a testament to, once again, the the quality and the, the, uh, I'm looking for a word, a solid uh, foundation. Well, the substance of the writing that... Even though people were mad, they still bought the book and they were still reading it. I, I remember being, I was coming in about at Children of Dune and being rather shocked, to be honest. Well, National Lampoon uh, <laughs> had Dune Messiah as their disappointment of the year. But over the years, people, as people have come to understand it, it, it sold millions of copies and, and now it's popular. Well, didn't they do a Dune, uh, D-O-O-N, a, a Dune uh, parody? <laughs> Yes, I think that did happen. Yeah, I, I think there were giant, <laughs> were giant pretzels instead of giant sandworms that went through the sand or something like that. But well, as kind of a a food sorceress myself, I find it hilarious. Well, you know that shows the strength of the book if it can uh, attract the lampooning of something as as uh, influential as Harvard Lampoon. Well, you didn't have you know the onion in those days, so there we are. You know. The pace, the pace at which you write is still, uh, that is burning in the back of my mind. How do you get a novel in two months that's worth publishing? I'm, my we don't God. write Dune. We don't write Dune novels in two months. Well, no, I wouldn't. I would. But Kevin was not talking about six, six books a year. Holy cow! Well, you write you write the books, and they all a lot of them are going concurrently. But uh, you know. The speed at which somebody writes something doesn't really equate with the the actual quality of it. I mean, there, the uh, Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol by hand with a goose quill in like six days, and that's one of the most popular books that has ever ever been published in human history. And Ray Bradbury wrote Fahrenheit 451, which I assume people would expect would, would consider a pretty good book. He wrote that in like five days on a rental typewriter at the UCLA would plunk a, a dime in and it would give him an hour of typing. And he typed the entire novel 
uh, in just a few days. That, Ray Bradbury uh, was a kind of a special case because he never edited anything he wrote. Everything he published was first draft. Everything. Well, and the, uh, I'll flip it around though because I, I've seen people that have spent ten or twelve years on a book and it still stinks. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. The amount of time you spent doesn't really matter. It's whether you've got the ideas and whether you've got the facility with words. And the other thing though is that most writers that write one book a year are not writing full time. They can't afford it. They've got some other job. And so they're only able to put in a couple of hours a night or a couple of hours in the weekend. I work all day long, seven days a week, and I'm writing many hours every day. And, and when Brian and I are working on something, he keeps up with me because he's, he's a pretty full bore writer too. So the amount of hours that I put into writing a book, even if it takes me two months to write it, is the equivalent to the hours that some other writer would put into a book in maybe two years. So you've you got to put that into perspective. And it takes us about a year, maybe a little less, to write a Dune novel, but we we take it back and forth through about eight drafts. Uh, I think the most, maybe six drafts, but we've, we've gone as high as 10 or 11 drafts, I think, on House of Trades. We really wanted to polish that one. But um, it goes back and forth. We'll each write. Uh, we, we take half of the chapters after we brainstorm. We'll have a very detailed outline. Kevin will take half the chapters based on his strengths. I'll take half of them on my strengths. And we each write, say, 50 chapters, uh, totally different storylines, and they're mm-hmm. supposed to weave together. Um, and then either Kevin will take the entire 100 chapters or I will, and that will be the second draft, and then it goes back and forth. Uh, electronically and, until we get it to the point where, where we want it and we send it out to readers and to the editors at a certain point um, and get their comments too and it becomes a finished product. What an exciting process. I what, mean, are, it what are your strengths? Which, who's, doing, who's doing who's what? Who's good at what? <laughs> well, Kevin blows up planets. He's a physics guy. <laughs> Yay! He, he worked for Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore, so he likes to he likes to blow things up and travel fast through the universe. And I I was a Cal Berkeley kid, and that's that's basically what my little green book of Chairman Rama is. Is that what what if the the Berkeley people uh, became our government uh, and created a utopia that's maybe a dystopia? But so I I, I write about social issues and women's issues, um, politics, religion. Kevin does all those things too. And he adds the physics and blowing things up part of it. But but our our writing styles are thankfully very very similar, so it becomes seamless. Um, and we we can't remember who wrote wrote what generally. You can polish each other's stuff. Well, we have to. That it's a it's a real collaboration. So that when say Brian's turn to go through all the chapters, he gets to write whatever he wants to and change whatever, and, and he doesn't. I mean, we don't show every word that got changed, and we will discuss something if if there's a larger issue in it. But I don't look at his little line edits, and he doesn't look at my little line edits. We we trust each other to to do what's best for the book, and and then it comes back to the other person, and we do another draft. Except on House of Trades, I think I added a scene, and I I wrote this what I thought was a great scene, and. Um, Kevin, when I got the book back, it was missing. He had chopped it out of there. And so Ooh. I went back and I was a little bit, you know, perturbed. And, and I looked and I found it and I, and I, he didn't tell me why he cut it out, but I looked at it and I, I came to understand what was wrong with it. And I, I rewrote it and put it back in and he didn't say anything and it stayed in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to even ask you. just never noticed at the last moment. <laughs> 
that's no, but that's that's how it, we we right now we're we're doing our final uh, pass on a book called Hellhole Inferno. It's the third book in our an original science fiction trilogy that'll be out in August. And I I had some other deadlines and I, and and my wife Scott got some health issues and so Brian kind of took the burden on that one doing most of the work and I, I trusted him on on all of the decisions he made. He asked me. I think like three separate paragraphs he had questions on and, and I, I gave him uh, the okay on him, but the, we, we both are of the same mindset when we're writing it. And, and that's why we, uh, we do it pretty seamlessly. It's, I guess it's 16 books now, 15 books together, something like six, that. Six, 16. There's been 13 Dune books and, um, three Hellhole books. That's yeah, magnificent. So and you, you have a chemistry and it's, it's, we, uh, we do. You know, it's it's one of those things that happens once in a lifetime. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's, we've had maybe a half hour of arguing over 16 years, and <laughs> we argue more with our wives every day. It was over what to order for dinner, I think it was, whatever. <laughs> you know, they say yeah. if you take all the science fiction fans in the world and lay them end to end, you still wouldn't reach a conclusion. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. we've also, with the 16 books that we've done together... That's just the books that we've done together, and, and, and that in itself is more books than most successful science fiction writers do in their entire career. Uh, and true. then Brian's got his own career of, of all these solo novels he's writing, and I've got uh, all my solo novels that I'm writing. So, and the publishing. And, and, and I'm doing the publishing, and, and you know, we, we both, I guess we don't rest very much. I, I drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> and, and Brian... Well, but Brian, I've collaborated with other people before, but but Brian's basically the only person in the world who can keep up with me when we're going together. He's uh, there's a lot of testosterone flying, I think, as we're we're cranking through our chapters, and each of us is is writing full steam. And and uh, when we brainstorm together, we we kind of I'll go to his house and stay for a few days while we brainstorm a new book, and then I'll I'll come home and kind of collapse with mental exhaustion, and I think he does about the same thing, but. Uh, that's where the ideas come from. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's been a terrific collaboration. Um, in fact, we <clears throat> when I picked Kevin up at the airport, I I only talked to him on the phone in 1997. I picked him up at the airport. We had so many ideas flying just in the, <laughs> the drive from the airport that I almost went off the road. You know, get a piece of paper, write it down. Where's the tape recorder? <laughs> well, that would have ended the collaboration real fast. Oh yes, indeed. We're glad yeah. we drive off the road. And we're glad that you were able to join us for this episode of The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Kevin Anderson and Brian Herbert, it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Gene and Susan. Yes, thank you very much. We hope we gave you a lot of stuff to read. Absolutely. We've just added another 30 books to our pick list, I think. Don't bother (laughs) me, I'm reading. You have just heard episode 59 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 3rd, 2014, with our guests Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, authors of Mentats of Dune. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, May 4th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and again on Thursday, May 8th, at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads on the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbull, the science officer with science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister, 
The engineer was Christian D. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Nevin. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.